Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the American Neurological Association Office of Education, wel welcoming you to another AUA Office of Education podcast. This is part of the AUA Expert Exchange podcast series, discussions about managing GU cancer, and specifically, the topic today will be immune checkpoint inhibitors in renal cell carcinoma. There has certainly been a lot that's happened in this area, and therefore we felt compelled to update this from a previous podcast that we, that we did last year. I am happy to introduce my co-host for this podcast, Dr. William Wong. Uh, Bill is Associate Professor and Vice Chairman of Clinical Affairs uh, at the NYU Langone Medical Center and is Chief of Urology at Tisch Hospital at that medical center. Bill is also the co-director of robotic surgery at NYU Langone Health. Bill, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's nice to have you back. Thanks, Vic. It's good to be back. Uh, I'm glad that uh, we have an opportunity to uh, do some updates on uh, the podcast that we did last year. Okay, so I just want to go through our learning objectives, and then I'm going to let you get right into it. So our learning objectives for this podcast are to discuss the current immunotherapy options for the treatment of renal cell carcinoma, to describe both completed and accruing clinical trials that are defining the paradigms of immunotherapy for RCC, and lastly, to identify and manage the adverse events related to these agents. So Bill, I thought we could start out with you just giving us a little background on immunotherapy. Great, thanks, Vic. So uh, I don't know if we really touched upon this too much the last time we did this, but I think it is a good place to start uh, by talking about briefly the immune system and cancer. Uh, as we all know, the immune system plays a critical role uh, for uh, a person to survive. Uh, and the immune system must be both stimulated and kept in check. So uh, for an immune system that is uh, not kept in check, uh, people can develop autoimmune diseases uh, and develop tissue damage from uh, their immune system attacking themselves. But obviously an immune system that is uh, both stimulated and inhibited uh, does provide uh, hemostasis or a homeostasis, excuse me, uh, for the host. Now, the way that the immune system is kept in check is through what we call immune checkpoints. And these are necessary for maintaining both self-tolerance uh, as well as protecting the host from tissue damage. Now, there are things that can stimulate the immune system, and those obviously are pathogens as well as uh, tumors or cancers. Uh, and the ability to stimulate uh, the immune system often uh, depends on the mutation load. So as we all know now, since we've been using immuno-oncology drugs for a long time, that certain cancers are more uh, susceptible to the use of immune-oncology agents. Uh, and for GU cancers, we're talking about urothelial cancers like bladder cancer, and of course, kidney clear cell cancer in particular. Uh, and so one way that tumors currently are able to suppress the immune system uh, is by suppressing these checkpoints. And so because of this, an entire field of immuno-oncology drugs has uh, developed over the past 
uh, several years. Uh, and these are called checkpoint inhibitors, which I alluded to. Uh, the two main categories that we have would be the anti-CTLA-4 antibodies, uh, which uh, play a role in the immune system uh, checkpoint, uh, allowing for activation of uh, T cells to attack tumor cells. And then the other main one, of course, is the PD-1 and PD-L1 checkpoint inhibitors, uh, which we all hear about. And so it's the combination of these uh, that currently provide the backbone for the treatment of renal cell cancer, metastatic renal cell cancer uh, in today's current uh, therapeutic armamentarium. So Bill, what's the rationale for immunotherapy in renal cell carcinoma? You, you touched upon it a little bit, um, but let's go into it in a little bit more detail. So, as I mentioned, uh, the tumor mutation load is quite high in both urothelial cancer as well as clear cell renal cell cancer. And it's because of this that uh, we realized over time that RCC or kidney cancer is highly immunogenic. And this dates back to cases that we've all heard about where a patient with uh, metastatic disease undergoes a radical nephrectomy and then they uh, develop spontaneous regression of their metastatic disease uh, from the immune system being stimulated. Uh, and this really prompted uh, people, especially in the 90s, to start to use immunotherapy uh, to treat renal cell carcinoma. And so everyone remembers who was around back then that uh, the use of interferon and interleukin-2 uh, were uh, two agents that were used for patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Uh, but as we've begun to recognize what actually occurs in these tumors, we've begun to recognize that there are really two components in the tumor microenvironment, if you want to call it that. Uh, one is the immune component and the other is the vascular component. And the vascular component really is the basis for a lot of our targeted therapies that we know of, like such as the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Uh, and the role that angiogenesis plays in renal cell carcinoma. But the other one really is the immune system. And it's a very common finding in tumor microenvironment that you'll have a lot of T cells and macrophages uh, within uh, tumor nephrectomy specimens, for instance, uh, and that these tumors uh, stain highly for the expression of PDL1. So it's recognition of sort of the uh, the, uh, the role that the immune system plays in kidney cancer that has really uh, allowed us to take the treatment of metastatic renal cell carcinoma further from the targeted therapies which occurred in the 2000s uh, and now immuno-oncology agents, particularly these checkpoint inhibitors, really are the backbone for the management of metastatic renal cell. So tell, tell us a little bit about what the current... Um, options are as you treat uh, metastatic renal cell cancer. Um, does one use, uh, you mentioned checkpoint inhibitors, um, when are they used alone or perhaps in combination with other agents? Sure. So I think the best way to sort of evaluate how we utilize these uh, agents really are to see how uh, they came about to be used in practice. And so there are several trials which uh, are worth mentioning uh, because they form the basis for not only FDA approval, 
but also for uh, sort of the pathways uh, in which we choose to use these drugs. So I think the one thing to first look at is that when we're dealing with patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma, uh, we often stratify them into uh, risk categories based on a variety of prognostic factors. There are multiple risk stratification uh, <clears throat> models out there, but the two most common ones would be the International Metastatic Renal Cell Carcinoma Database Consortium, or IMDC for short, or the MSKCC prognostic model. And what they look at are the patient's clinical performance status, uh, as well as a variety of uh, parameters such as hemoglobin, calcium. Uh, and there are some minor variations between the two, but both models break down uh, to three main categories, uh, low risk or favorable risk, uh, in which case the patient with metastatic kidney cancer has no prognostic factors. Uh, then we're talking about intermediate risk where they may have one or two prognostic factors. And then finally, poor risk, which would be three or more uh, prognostic factors. And so it is by stratifying these patients that many of these trials came about uh, in terms of determining the efficacy uh, of these checkpoint inhibitors. And so these were uh, from the beginning, compared to what had been the standard of care, as I mentioned in the 2000s, which were the tyrosine kinase inhibitors or the targeted therapies. And the first one that's worth mentioning uh, is uh, Checkmate 025, uh, which examined uh, the role or the efficacy of nivolumab versus everolimus, which is an NTOR inhibitor, in a class of patients that had been previously treated already with targeted therapies. And in this study, it demonstrated that nivolumab uh, had not only an improvement in overall survival, uh, but also had a favorable toxicity profile, allowing this to gain FDA approval back in 2015 as a second-line treatment for metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Following that, uh, the next trial that's worth mentioning uh, would be Checkmate 214, uh, which was a trial looking at advanced renal cell carcinoma with the use of two checkpoint inhibitors, ipilimumab and nivolumab. And this combination of IO therapies uh, demonstrated uh, a significant uh, overall survival and objective response rates uh, in poor risk or intermediate risk patients. And again, due to the somewhat uh, favorable toxicity profile, uh, this combination gained FDA approval uh, for use in intermediate and poor risk kidney cancer patients. Now, it is worth mentioning at some point that there were some good risk patients in this uh, study as well, and the number was quite small, but because of the fact that these patients also did have some efficacy, uh, there are some people who are incorporating this into their favorable risk or good risk patients. Uh, since we uh, last did this on the podcast, uh, they had updated the uh, outcomes at the 2020 ESMO. Uh, and with four years of follow-up, uh, these patients continue to demonstrate a durable response. Bill, could you just uh, review for our audience um, favorable, intermediate, and poor risk? Sure. 
So as I mentioned before, there are two large model, models that are primarily used. And again, it would be the MSKCC prognostic model or the IMDC uh, prognostic model. And as you just said, this breaks down into favorable, intermediate, or poor risk. Uh, those with favorable or good risk or low risk have none of these uh, prognostic factors. And I mentioned they were uh, poor performance status, anemia, hypercalcemia, uh, elevated platelets, uh, elevated LDH. And so although there are minor variances uh, between the two models, uh, if you have none of these prognostic factors, you are considered in the good risk or favorable risk. If you have one to two of them, uh, that places you in the intermediate risk. And in either model, if you have three or more of these prognostic factors, that places you at poor risk. Great, thanks. So, you know, as we began to recognize uh, the utility and the efficacy of these immuno-oncology drugs uh, alone or in combination with themselves, uh, people began investigating the use of uh, immunotherapy in combination with the targeted therapies that I had mentioned before in the past. And so uh, over time, there have been several combination trials uh, which have demonstrated uh, superiority and efficacy versus just a tyrosine kinase inhibitor or a targeted therapy alone. Uh, and the trials that are worth noting in this particular situation include Emotion 151, which was atezolizumab plus bevacizumab versus sunitinib, which is the tyrosine kinase inhibitor in patients with previously untreated metastatic renal cell carcinoma. And this did demonstrate an improved progression-free survival, uh, particularly in those patients who did stain for PDL1. Uh, and although this did not gain FDA approval, this really laid the groundwork to demonstrate that there was benefit in combining both your immuno-oncology agents along with targeted therapies. So the next trial, which I'm gonna mention here, did eventually gain FDA approval, and this was by combining pembrolizumab uh, with axitinib. So again, a combination of an immuno-oncology drug plus a targeted therapy. And this was done in a, a cohort of patients who were treatment naive, uh, and this was randomized to sunitinib, as I mentioned, versus the combination of pembro and axitinib. And the combination therapy demonstrated an improvement in survival uh, that was significant across all of the risk stratification groups. So whether you were good risk, poor risk, or intermediate risk, uh, there was a, a, a demonstrable benefit. Thus, the FDA approved in 2019 the use of pembrolizumab and axitinib for all three uh, risk categories uh, for patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Uh, again, this was also recently updated since we last uh, discussed this. Uh, and at the 2020 ASCO, uh, there was uh, an improvement in the favorable risk, although there was no survival benefit noted at this time. And this may be an issue of following these patients out long enough because those with favorable or good risk uh, are destined to do well to begin with. And then finally, the last one that I wanna mention in this uh, combination would be Evalumab and Axidinib uh, in the Javelin Renal 101 trial. 
And this was again in a cohort of treatment naive patients with clear cell and renal cell carcinoma. Uh, and they had a combination of a PDL1 inhibitor, a Velumab, versus, and exitinib versus sudinitinib. Uh, there was a 31% reduction in the risk of disease progression and death, regardless of whether or not the tumor stained for PDL1. Uh, and for those that did uh, stain, there was an even uh, uh, improved reduction in death or progression at 39%. Uh, the findings of this trial uh, resulted in FDA approval of exitinib uh, and evalumab for renal cell carcinoma in the front line. So I just presented a whole bunch of studies, and these studies are the ones that really form what the current treatment paradigm is for patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. And you know, I'm happy to just review this once again before we move on. And so basically, the initial approach right now for patients with metastatic clear cell renal cell carcinoma would be risk stratification. And then based on their risk stratification, a determination as to which uh, agents you want to use. Uh, for favorable risk, as I mentioned, exitinib and pembrolizumab uh, is considered a preferred regimen. Uh, and for poor intermediate risk, we have the combinations of exitinib and pembrolizumab along with ipilimumab and nivolumab, um, as well as um, uh, Evalumab and exitinib. So all of these uh, combinations uh, are uh, efficacious regardless of risk category, but you can see based on sort of how these trials were done, uh, there is a certain treatment paradigm which uh, people are following these days. For those with good risk, uh, it's still acceptable or considered a good, a reasonable option to uh, either use the targeted therapies uh, or just simply to follow the patient if they don't have a high volume of disease. So Bill, I know that... <laughs> I know that was a bit much, but... Uh, Actually, know, I thought it was, uh, it was very well summarized. <laughs> um, you know, one of the big things with, with uh, immune therapy are the the complications associated with the, with those therapies? And I thought maybe you can just again briefly um, review those, and also if there's any. And I, I don't. One thing I don't know is are are there are any of the agents more likely to cause uh, a particular side effect in a particular patient? Sure. So I think. Uh... The one thing to recognize is that those patients who do have adverse events uh, often have what we call immune-mediated or immune-related events. So these are events that are adverse events that occur uh, because of the checkpoint blockade. And so this can happen really in a variety of uh, systems within the body. You can have uh, autoimmune hepatitis, you can have nephritis and renal failure. You can develop dermatologic complications such as rash uh, or pruritus. Uh, you can have GI complications, including colitis, respiratory complications uh, with pneumonitis. And additionally, uh, the endocrine system can be affected uh, with the result of uh, 
the uh, failure of the endocrine system. So sort of any system uh, in the body can theoretically be uh, impacted by the use of these uh, agents. And so when it comes to uh, the adverse effects that you get from uh, treating patients with these agents, it's really important uh, that the provider or the clinician recognize that what's happening is actually an immune-mediated event as opposed to some other uh, issue, uh, particularly like as an example in the setting of uh, pneumonitis that the uh, provider recognized early that it's the use of the uh, immuno-oncology agent and not uh, something else like a pneumonia or just a regular cough or infection. And you know, for most of us uh, who are urologists and even urologic oncologists, most of us are not actually delivering these drugs. Uh, so we may not necessarily be in tune with uh, recognizing some of these side effects, um, but it's important that we do think about it, particularly if we do have a patient that we may be uh, taking care of, that we operated on, for instance, that has metastatic disease and is receiving one of these agents, uh, you know, it's very possible that your patient could come and tell you, well, you know, I'm having joint pain or I keep having diarrhea or I developed this rash. And it's really early recognition uh, that is key to, uh, you know, preventing something that's permanent and irreversible. Uh, so as I mentioned, really what the side effects are uh, depends on which part of the body is being impacted uh, by the uh, immuno-oncology drug or by the checkpoint inhibitor. So uh, as I already mentioned, uh, with skin toxicity, you can have a rash. Uh, with GI toxicity, you're primarily talking about diarrhea, uh, abdominal pain, signs of colitis. Uh, you can have polyarteritis. And so I think the first step, if you do suspect that a patient has an immune-mediated uh, uh, adverse event, would be discontinuation of the agent. And so uh, early recognition and then holding or stopping the drug uh, frequently is enough to allow the patient to recover from that. And just because they had an immune-mediated uh, adverse event doesn't necessarily mean that they can't go back on the agent, but it's definitely worth uh, recognizing it and holding it until those symptoms resolve. Now, there are situations where it is uh, more severe and it does require additional intervention. And uh, one sort of common treatment would be to then involve the use of steroids, whether you give it orally or whether you give it um, intravenously. Steroids are very efficacious in managing some of these immune-related events uh, after initiation of these drugs. And if steroids don't seem to manage it, then you can start using uh, biologic agents, such as infliximab, which we all know is used in patients with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Uh, and these can be highly effective uh, in managing immune-related adverse events, because as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, the immune system plays such a role in both uh, stimulating as well as controlling the immune system 
that in patients with autoimmune diseases where their immune system is, I guess uh, you could consider that, you know, uh, uncontrolled, uh, these biologics can be useful in managing side effects. I think one thing that's interesting is uh, an anti-IL-6 antibody, tocilizumab, which uh, has become in the past six months a very uh, well-known biologic because uh, it's being used in COVID for patients uh, who have a dramatic immune response uh, after being infected with COVID. So, uh, you know, I think when you think about patients uh, and, and the potential complications that they can have while they're on these life-saving agents, uh, again, it's early recognition that perhaps the symptoms they're describing are related to their uh, treatment. Uh, and then discontinuing or holding the agent and then moving on to steroids or even other biologics uh, in order to uh, reel in the adverse events. Uh, it's worth noting, however, uh, as an example, that these can be irreversible. Uh, and in the event of an endocrinopathy uh, where a patient can be permanently uh, hypothyroid uh, or adrenally is insufficient, uh, these patients may need to be treated, um, you know, with the lifelong uh, uh, re uh, replacement therapy. So it's uh, something to just keep a think about in the, in the back of your head. But as I mentioned earlier, we don't really uh, administer these agents, uh, but we certainly have a lot of patients who do receive these. Bill, are any of the agents more likely to uh, affect uh, one system uh, versus another, you know, more is dermatitis or pneumonitis or colitis more likely with one agent versus another, or is it just, um, you know, a particular patient can develop any of these things with equal propensity regardless of the agent? Right. Um, so I'm not aware if one particular type of checkpoint inhibitor or CTLA-4 antibody uh, uh, is more likely to uh, attack a certain uh, system in the body, but it's well known that any patient with a pre-existing history of an autoimmune disease, uh, is, uh, it should be considered a, a contraindication to, to using those agents. And in terms of which ones have a higher toxicity profile, uh, it's also at least I'm not aware of one agent uh, having a higher uh, toxicity than another, but it's well known that the combination of ipilimumab uh, uh, as well as a checkpoint inhibitor uh, does carry a significant toxicity profile with it. So by combining two checkpoint inhibitors, you do increase the toxicity. So I have two last questions for you. First is, um, are there trials that are currently ongoing uh, that may further change what we're doing six months, a year, two years from now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything that we've talked about really up to this point and the trials that, that you know, gained approval for uh, use of these agents have primarily been in not only those with metastatic disease, but also those with clear cell histology. So I think two areas of, of, uh, of active investigation and, and interest is the use of these agents in patients with non-clear cell histology, uh, as well as using these agents 
not only in patients with metastatic disease, but those with uh, high risk localized disease or even using it in the neoadjuvant setting uh, as an example, prior to undergoing surgery, not necessarily as a way of uh, shrinking a tumor or sort of um, uh, downsizing or downstaging a tumor, but really uh, to see if the uh, administration prior to treatment or removal of the primary tumor may have some benefit. I, I think one that's sort of worth mentioning would be uh, the uh, PROSPER trial, which is uh, still open and still accruing patients. Uh, and in this trial, uh, patients are receiving prior to nephrectomy uh, an upfront up uh, dose of immunotherapy, followed by surgery, and then followed by additional immunotherapy afterwards. And so one could think of it as a way of priming the immune system while the tumor is still intact, uh, and then removing the tumor and then looking for efficacy afterwards in reducing the risk of having a recurrence. Uh, in terms of patients with non-clear cell histology, right now uh, there is no sort of targeted therapy or agents that we know that are going to be in particular efficacious, uh, but there are multiple studies looking at some of the uh, checkpoint inhibitors such as a single agent pembrolizumab, uh, as well as uh, other combinations uh, such as atezolizumab and bevacizumab, or even agents that we have not even talked about yet, uh, including other uh, targeted therapies as well as other checkpoint inhibitors. So there's a lot of active investigation going on right now, uh, but I think just a few were worth mentioning uh, since uh, they really could change how we treat patients uh, in the near future. That's great. And you answered my second question because my second question was going to be uh, regarding um, locally advanced disease, neoadjuvant, uh, adjuvant therapies, et cetera. So you covered that really nicely. Well, Bill, this has been a, a fantastic summary and update uh, on uh, immune therapy in the uh, current treatment of renal cell carcinoma, current and, and perhaps even future treatment. Uh, thank you so much uh, for your time and preparation in, in uh, doing this podcast. Um, I also would like to uh, thank our audience for listening. Um, and as always, uh, for more information, you can visit our website at auanet.org slash university. Bill, any final closing remarks uh, before we finish? Uh, no, I just want to really encourage everyone out there uh, to remember that all this uh, was uh, a re result of uh, enrolling patients in clinical trials. And I really want to encourage uh, everyone out there who's listening that it is uh, you know, uh, important that we all participate and all take part in this so that we can help our patients moving forward. Great thought to close on. Thanks, Bill. All right. Thanks, Vic.